Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. Today, we're joined by Marielena Incapie, who is a nationally respected leader, a legal and political strategist in the immigrant justice movement, and a leading voice in the national conversation on immigration. It's a topic of renewed focus given Biden's joint session address this week. And this is such an important conversation, so I'm glad that she's joining us. So why don't we just jump right in? Marielena Incapie is executive director of the National Immigration Law Center, the nation's leading organization dedicated to defending and advancing the rights of low-income immigrants in the U.S. and also of the NILC Immigrant Justice Fund. Under her leadership, NILC and the IJF strategically combine litigation, policy, communications, narrative change, and movement building to effect transformational change. As an immigrant from Colombia, Ms. Incapie brings a bilingual and bicultural cultural perspective to her work in the immigrants' rights movement. Welcome, Marielena. Thank you. Gracias. So wonderful to be with all three of you. You currently serve as co-chair of the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force on Immigration. So to start, we'd love to hear from you about what is the current state of our immigration system and of immigration to the U.S.? Yes. Well, our state of immigration is that we are in a new day. Um, Under the Biden administration, we are finally starting to return back to the United States being a beacon of hope and a welcoming nation that sees immigrants as a strength to our nation. I mean, listen, I will say that as a Latina, as an immigrant from Colombia, as someone who grew up in a low-income family, the last four years have felt like nothing less than a war on immigrant communities. Um, And the previous administration knew very well that what they were trying to do was use immigration as a wedge issue, both to chip away at our democracy, to change or try to slow down the demographic shifts of our country and instill deep, deep fear and distrust of government by immigrant communities. So today is a new day and um, it's really wonderful to see the progress that we're making. And we are making progress. You are absolutely right. But I do want to be a little reflective on the past four years and look at some of the issues that they brought up and they did make wedge issues. And one of them was the issue at the border. And I look at it through a pandemic lens and I just wonder, is there truly a concern for COVID precautions um, at the border when it comes to immigrants who are coming into the country? No, you know, one of the um, old Uh, strategies by anti-immigrant foes is to use the public health argument, right? And to, and when I say old, I'm talking like decades, right? Even previous centuries of immigrants as carriers of disease or illnesses. And in fact, with the pandemic, with COVID in particular, we've seen public health officials and experts clearly state that the the immigrants are not carrying uh, the pandemic. Like we all know, right? Like actually you can't even put a wall around the pandemic. The pandemic has absolutely impacted everybody across the globe, um, including even in our local communities, right? And so the situation at the border um, has nothing to do with the pandemic, and yet the last administration, one of the first things that they did was to try to erect not only the physical wall at the U.S.-Mexico border, but actually an invisible wall by trying to blame immigrants for everything not only the pandemic, but so many other of the other challenges that our country has been facing. 
Yeah. And when we look at all of the the people who are coming um, from that border, we've seen some really heartbreaking videos of children, especially three and five-year-olds being tossed over the wall. I saw a video of a little four-year-old boy along the street. And I just wonder, where do the unaccompanied minors go and who gets to decide? Yeah. Yeah, Darian, it's so absolutely heartbreaking. Um, And it's so important that we remember that at the end of the day, and for our organization at the National Immigration Law Center, one of the things that we are really trying to do is to shift the conversation away from immigration as a policy issue and as an issue that needs a problem that needs to be fixed, but instead to focus on people, right? Mm -hmm. To take a people-centered approach and understand and ask who are we talking about? As you just mentioned, Darian, right? Like we're talking about children, right. right? We're talking about children who are coming to the United States and we should be asking why. Why would a family ever allow their child to have to go through such a dangerous journey to another country? A mother only does that if in fact the choices, she doesn't have a choice, right? If, if it is really truly a matter of life and death. And so when we look at the Northern Triangle um, from Central America, we're talking about Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Um, the situation at the border is one that wasn't created overnight. It wasn't even created over the last four years. We're talking about decades in the making. Um, and it's going to take a lot of work to address the situation at the root. We believe that we should be focusing on people's freedom to stay in their home country, right? So really, and this is actually one of the, um, I think, very hopeful things about the Biden administration is that they are looking not only at what do we do with the children once they arrive, but how do we ensure that families don't have to make that difficult choice Mm -hmm. um, and that the families have the ability and the freedom to stay in their home country, whether it's because of violence, and that's the reason that they're being um, forced to leave their home country, whether it's because of climate change, which is one of the big drivers of migration, um, or, you know, or so many other things. And so when the children are arriving here in the United States at this moment under the Biden administration, especially, what they are doing is trying to put back in place legal systems that allow for those children to be processed through an orderly fashion and by the health and human services, right? Because they are not, these are not children who are, the the children are, are, are not security threats, right? They are children who are coming and have the right to be processed through our asylum system, um, through our unaccompanied minor laws and, and put in the care of first and foremost, what the law says is that we have to be looking at what is in the interest in the child's best interest and making sure that they are placed Um, ideally with sponsors that are family members if they have family in the United States. So um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is part of the Health and Human Services, is the part of the federal government that is responsible for processing all of those children and making sure that those children's well-being is being uh, accounted for. That's really helpful. And President Bush was back in the news last week hailing immigration as America's greatest strength. Um, Immigration historically has driven our economy. It's strengthened our country. But what has our immigration policy been in the past and what has been done or not done since President Bush pushed for reform? Yeah, it was actually so heartening and welcoming to have a former Republican president remind us that actually immigration has historically been a bipartisan issue, right? This is the thing is that when we look throughout the history of the United States, um, 
immigrants have been seen as part of who we are as a nation. It's part of the story that we tell. There's a whole other conversation about the reckoning that we need to do with the racial and violent founding of this nation, particularly with indigenous communities, with um, African and descendants of enslaved Africans. Um, but as a whole, if we are not you know, descendants of indigenous people and enslaved Africans, everyone else in the country is an immigrant and has an immigrant story to tell. And so it was especially great that in this moment, President Bush came out to share his story, humanizing immigrants through his paintings, which is like, how beautiful is that for a former president? Like, mm -hmm. especially after the last four years of what we've been through. Oh my goodness. I'm like, I want a book. I want to see his paintings. <laughs> um, and it was also such a reminder to Hannah of like, I can't believe that here we are in the 21st century and we still are operating on an arcane immigration system from 1986. I was in high school um, and that was the last time we reformed our immigration laws in this country. And, you know, when I think about the fact that migration is such a global phenomenon and that it has existed since the beginning of humanity and we will always continue to move, it's incredible to me that in the United States, still in the third decade of this new century that we're in, that we haven't been able to um, come together as a country across political parties to address, uh, to address the situation, which yesterday's census figures, you know, tell us we actually need to, because mm -hmm. this is about our future. It's not even about what happened in the past or where we are today, but this is really about who we are becoming as America and what we need to do for, um, for all of us to be, have the freedom to thrive. To your point, Marilena, about how overdue this is and how hungry we are to see action, the Biden administration put forth an immigration plan right out of the gate. So how did immigration come to be one of his first priorities? Yeah, so I think there are a number of things. One, the you know first thing that I would say is that if we look at this historic election that we had, um, both the turnout in November and in January in Georgia, this election was delivered primarily by led by Black women and people of color, young people, right? This multi, this historic multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-generational electorate that came out despite a pandemic, right, being in a pandemic, and despite the amount of voter suppression that was happening, people came out because of what's, what was at stake and what is continues to be at stake, which is really our democracy. And so um, the organizing that many of our sister organizations and that we at the Nilk Immigrant Justice Fund did through our C4 um, helped the Biden, well, at the time, the Biden campaign know that immigrants were a top issue. And that one of the things that we did over the last year, our research showed that actually that a pro-immigrant vision for America is a winning, it's a winning message and it's a winning vision that voters, persuadable voters in particular, actually supported Biden by an increasing number um, because he had a pro-immigrant vision. And it's like, in general, the majority of Americans, Republican, Democrat, and independents want a pro-immigrant vision for America. And so when through a lot of organizing and advocacy, we were able to get President Biden on day one um, of you know his inauguration to announce like a third of the executive actions that were announced were immigration related. He knew that after the last four years of what we've been through as a country, um, that re regaining that foothold, right, regaining our standing in the world as a welcoming nation once again was good and important, not just for immigrants, but actually for America and for who we are as a, as a nation and again for our standing in the, in the world. 
Um, and what is the proposal that the Biden administration put forward? And what's the debate in Congress? Yes. So there are a couple of things. The first thing is President Biden announced um, that he was sending a bill to Congress, and that bill has now been introduced both in the Senate and the House, and that's the U.S. Citizenship Act. And that bill would provide a path to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented family members, community members in our country, the majority of whom have been in the United States for over a decade. Um, they are taxpayers. They are our coworkers, our classmates, they're our neighbors, and they um, want to be recognized as Americans and want to be able to finally get onto that path to citizenship. So that's the first piece. The second piece is um, really looking at how do we create legal channels for people to be able to migrate through an orderly fashion, which at the end of the day, again, that is what everybody wants to be able to do. No one wants to pay $10,000, $20,000 to a coyote to come for, to the United States, for example, or to be trafficked as a human, you know, human a victim of human trafficking, or as you know, men you mentioned earlier, Darianne, to, for children to be coming right. in, in such dangerous conditions. So creating those legal channels for people to be able to come, re, um, reinstating uh, and rebuilding the infrastructure for asylum and refugee, which again was decimated by the previous administration. And then finally, and really important, are addressing the root causes of migration, which is the first time, I believe, in if not decades, it's the first time in recent history that we've had re Republican or Democratic administration say we're actually going to address the root causes. And I want to just pause on that for a second, because one of the, the challenges that we have in the United States is the United States, we've been having a conversation about immigration almost as a exclusively as a domestic policy issue, when in fact, it is a global phenomenon. And you're not going to address it exclusively through a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Actually, we need to take a look at our foreign policy. We need to look at economic policy. We need to look at climate change economic trade, right? All of those issues impact the push and pull factors of migration. And again, this is happening all over the world. And so having a regional approach, um, particularly in the Western hemisphere, where the Biden administration will work with the governments of throughout the Americas, that is how we're actually going to get to a place where we're resolving the current situation and preparing and managing migration flows for the future of our country and for the and for the for I would say also for the benefit of of the region as a whole also. And when we're talking about how comprehensive the impact is of immigration, immigration reform, there's talk about including it in the infrastructure package. So I want to know, do you think that's the right approach? And do you believe that a compromise on border security with congressional Republicans will be necessary in order to get it passed? Great question. So a couple of things that I would say. Um, one is, so the U.S. Citizenship Act, which is the Biden bill, um, as I mentioned, got introduced in the Senate and the House. Since then, two other bills have passed the House. One is the Dream and Promise Act, which would provide a path to citizenship for immigrant youth and for um, immigrants that have temporary protected status um, that are long-term residents of our country, right? Some of them have been in the United States for two decades, if not longer. Um, so the Dream and Promise has passed um, in the House, as has the Farm Worker Modernization Act. Those two bills are really critical because they already passed in the House in 2019. And so those can actually be brought to a vote in the Senate really quickly, pass and get sent to President Biden's desk for a signature ASAP. And we believe um, that 
we need to do that, that actually we need to win relief for our communities as quickly as possible, as often as possible. And so while the Biden bill is um, bold and ambitious and aspirational and is what we should have become law, the fact is that we shouldn't waste any time. Like we see the impact, the human impact, but also the economic impact on our country by not having every day that passes without immigration reform means that we are suffering as a nation um, because of that and people are suffering because of that. And so um, we think that those two bills plus the um, Citizenship for Essential Workers bill, which has also been introduced now in the Senate and the House, if those three bills could be sent to um, or, or go, go through the reconciliation process and be brought up for a vote, um, we believe that that would actually be the solution that we need in this moment as soon as possible. And, you know, look, I think that um, there are always concessions and negotiations that need to happen and we will engage them at that time if necessary. But we also know that Democrats are in control in this in the Senate and in the House. And I think the larger question also becomes, is the Biden administration going to use, use their political capital to ensure that these bills don't stay simply as a campaign promise, but actually that they become real, um, real law and, and provide real relief for our communities? I want to switch gears for a second to the economic impact of immigration because we touched on it a little bit, but can you lay out for our listeners exactly what we mean by that and exactly how immigration positively affects our economy? Definitely. So, you know, one of the most important things is that there's this, um, I think uh, most people in the United States, and I think all of the listeners know um, that immigrant workers, many of whom are undocumented, are part of our ecosystem. Like there is not a single day that we wake up in this country. If you eat, guess who picked that fruit or that vegetable, right? Or or who's working in the meat packing in the poultry plants, right? All of the food that we eat and consume every single day in this country comes from immigrant workers who are playing this really essential role in our economy. Um, same thing um, if we take think about who is taking care of our children, of our elderly, who is working in the health context, right? Whether it's the um, DACA recipients that are also health professionals or educators, um, essential workers are overly represented by black and brown communities. And 80, I think almost 85, 80% of the essential workers who are immigrants are undocumented immigrants themselves. Separately, undocumented immigrants contribute to our social security system and our tax base every single year. It's estimated by just the Social Security Administration alone that undocumented immigrants are contributing $13 billion every year um, into the social security system, a system that they are not even eligible for, right? And so we are actually, when we think about the contributions of undocumented immigrants, they're actually subsidizing, right, a lot of the existing benefits that elder um, members of our communities, for example, provide. And then in addition to that, the number of uh, immigrants who are starting small businesses, right? Many of them are employers, including undocumented immigrants who don't, who are not able to work legally, for example. And so one alternative for them is to start their own business. And among one of the many traits of immigrants is that immigrants are very entrepreneurial and very, um, you know, self-starters because you have to be creative about how you're going to support yourself and your family. And so there are so many different ways, and I could go on and on about the many ways that uh, immigrants are contributing to our economy. Um, 
But I would also say that the other place is that immigrants are essential to who we are as a society, our culture, um, our, um, you know, the, the, the ways that we are helping to shape, you know, I'm reminded of the Oscars, right, where the best director, the Chinese woman, first person, of, first woman of color, first of all, is just mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. historical record. And to have a Chinese immigrant also be recognized by that. So again, immigrants are contributing to our economy in our society and our culture in so many different ways, which is why we, uh, the National Immigration Law Center launched this Immigrants Are Essential um, campaign to help um, help the, the country recognize that role that immigrants are playing in our communities. Well, so there's so much focus on the border, but my understanding is that a lot of people are not coming through the border. They're coming through air travel. They're overstaying their visas. What percentage of people come through the borders and why is that such a focus? Oh, that is such a great question, Darian. Is it a little loaded? Yeah, just a little. You know, what's interesting is, again, the anti-immigrant forces in this country for several decades now (laughs) have been focusing on the border. And actually, one of the really frustrating things about this moment that we're in is that in light of the pandemic and the economic crisis, and frankly, the racial injustices, right, that we are like this whole conversation in the country, Republicans have been so skilled at constantly changing the conversation and trying to distract from their failed leadership on the pandemic and the economy, for example. And when we think about the the conversation that's happening around the border, it's like, wait, they actually supported the previous administration in decimating the asylum and refugee resettlement infrastructure. And so the the current situation was created in great part by Republicans and the the previous administration. And and the the, um, kind of that uh, obsession that Trump had with building the wall and having Mexico pay for it and all that insanity of the last four years. Like it had nothing to do with solving an issue at all, right? Like it's all theater, it's all political theater and all fabricated crisis. And so you asked the right question, Darian, which is like, what we really need to do is like, let's like, let's unveil what's what they're talking about and exploit and like, uh, not exploit, um, expose, right? That 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 is really fabricated and theatrics, political theatrics, when in fact, if you really want to address the situation, we first need to start by recognizing the undocumented aspiring Americans who are here, right? That's the legalization piece. And then looking at our legal immigration system, like why is it, right, that people are coming and having and and not and, and not able to um, get a green card or get on a path to citizenship. Why is it that our immigration system is so dysfunctional? I would argue in part by design, there's a reason who is benefiting from this immigration system being so dysfunctional for more than a quarter century, right? Um, and that includes the fact that people are not coming through the U.S.-Mexico border and instead are overstaying visas, right? And so the the need to reform our legal immigration system um, is really paramount, but that's not the conversation we're having, right? And that's not the conversation Republicans do not want us to have, which is why, again, I think especially as we're in this week in particular, think getting ready to celebrate the first 100 days of the Biden administration, it's so important for Democrats and for the Biden administration to not get stuck in a conversation only about the border, obviously we should be focused on addressing that and, and putting in place the systems that are necessary, but then also taking a step back and looking at 
the immigrant population as a whole, people who are in our community who we need, there's so much that can be done, both through legislation and also through the executive branch, right? There's a lot that President Biden can do through the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Labor, um, Health and Human Services, the Department of Justice, right? Every federal government has a role in impacting the lives of low-income immigrants and improving the lives of immigrants so that we actually lift the floor for all Americans in our country. Use the phrase aspiring Americans, and I think that that's so beautiful, and I will probably be reflecting on that for a while. And I know that this might be a very naive question, so I hope that you will humor me in this, but it seems to me that there's enough space in the United States for everyone. Why can't we allow people to come into the country? Is it an issue of resources? What is, what is the issue? What's the baseline? Yes, it's a great question. I think it's an issue. There's there are a number of different pieces to that. So one is we live in a country in which politicians have exploited fear, used race as a divider, and um and and have perpetuated a sense of scarcity in our country. We live in one of the richest nations of the world. Um and we should be able to not only take care of our our people, right, both U.S. born people, but we should also be able to open the doors and welcome people who want to come to the United States to fulfill their dreams, to fulfill their full potential. We have, again, we have so many documented stories throughout our history of people who have come with nothing in their pockets, right? Almost every American has that story of like their great grandfather, their grandfather, their mother, whoever it is, or they themselves who came to the United States when they were a child um, and went on to achieve great things. I think of my own family, right? My father was recruited to the United States um, as a, um, a guest worker to work in the textile factories in Rhode Island, right? He was consi- considered a skilled worker. They needed people. The textile industry in New England was a big industry at the time in the 1970s. And he knew that by coming over, he was going, initially he came over with an employment-based visa, but the immigration laws allowed him to petition for us. I'm the youngest of 10. My mother, like we all came over eventually in the 1970s. My father had a second grade education. My mom had a fifth grade education. They didn't speak any English. They were factory workers. They owned minimum wage. They eventually bought a house. We are all professionals. I have a sister who's a biochemist. I have siblings who are educators. I have, you know, folks in the finance industry. I get to defend the constitution and help really, you know, rebuild who we are as a nation. And I think about like, there are so many people like my father and my mother who today want to, who are aspiring to be American, right? Who want to give their best and be their best. And, um, provide for future generations to have a better life. Like that's who we are as a nation. And I want us to get back to that place um, because I believe in who this country is and the promise of who we can be as a country. So you're so right that people use scare tactics. I grew up in Galesburg, Illinois, And Galesburg is one of the places that lost Maytag, and Maytag had initially moved to Mexico. And so when that happened, you know, a lot of people, Maytag was our lead industry, and people had, you know, long legacies of jobs. And so it really put fear into people. Um, But 
But back to the root is actually when we bring more people into the country, we actually grow jobs. It's the opposite of anyone trying to take jobs. We we grow jobs. And um, to some extent, the Obama administration did try to expand some of those policies, some of the visas, and they had an entrepreneurship visa program. What do you think about that? And should we reinstate some of those programs as well? Yeah, I so appreciate your question, Johanna, for a couple of reasons. So one is, yes, um, you know, I believe that the statistics show that one out of every two small businesses are created by immigrants. And actually, if you look at our large corporations like the Googles of the world and the high tech, those are many of them are immigrant owned companies or, or immigrants started. A lot of the startups are also by immigrants. So so there's that piece. Um, a lot of the folks who are coming to our universities, we have some of the best universities in the world. We should want people to come to our universities and we should want them to then stay here and put those skills into practice for, you know, for, for the good of our country and the globe. Um, and then the last thing that I think is so important about the Maytag example you gave is that that is where, again, politicians have been so good at exploiting and using immigration and the othering of immigrants or other, you know, black and brown communities, for example, to say, blame them. It is those immigrants who are here to take your jobs or those, you know, in the country, in the example of Maytag, for example, they they went to another country when in fact, what we need are changes to our economic justice policies, right? What we need is to make sure that all workers in the United States have job stability, that all workers in the United States have access to unions and can organize and can protect their jobs, right? That they can, that they have, that we have um, living wages, right? That we have a $15 plus minimum wage, that they have health protections on their work because it is all of those, all those protections, right? For the middle class and for workers that will actually help all of us succeed. But what, again, and we're seeing this right now where Republicans are starting to talk about um, suddenly becoming the, 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 the party that cares about workers. Um, and it's, it's simply, I can see it right now. It's like, they're doing that because they're, um, I think setting themselves up in 2022 and 2024 to be able to exploit immigration as, again, let's blame the immigrants as taking your jobs away or something like that. And there's a beautiful opportunity that we have in this moment and the Biden administration has in this moment is to say, no, actually, we're going to put policies in place that benefit all workers and that an immigrant justice agenda provide legalization to immigrants, for example, is part of that. Like, actually, if you are concerned about undocumented workers, then the way to address that is providing them the legal status that they need so that they can you know, be, you know, within working within the law. And then separately, that for the undocumented workers that are exploited on the job, which again, employers knowingly hire them, exploit them because they know they can get away with not not paying minimum wage, having horrific health and safety conditions, not paying workers comp, not paying into the tax system. Talk about tax evasion, right? It's actually happening from the abusive corporations. Like if those workers were able to come forward and know that they were going to be protected against um, deportation, and that they would actually get work authorization while they collaborated with the federal government, with the Department of Labor investigation, we would have many more employers being held accountable, right? And so the solutions often lie in our economic policies, economic justice policies, not in immigration. What we've had is a lot of detention and deportation of immigrants rather than actually improving the lives of all workers. 
Well, you raise a good point. And I guess to that, just help me disavow for any of my listeners in Galesburg, the notion that um, that any of these regulations or, you know, uh, unions would actually cause some of these companies to leave. Because that's what I think a lot of the misinformation for people has said, they forced them to leave because it's overregulated or, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, problems with our system. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is where it's important for for listeners to always be asking why, who is benefiting from this, right? And if you think about those corporations that have left communities and basically have resulted in communities being disinvested in, that corporation is still making a lot more money because they went for cheaper labor and they're getting, you know, tax breaks and all of that if workers instead joined together, both U.S.-born and immigrant workers to improve their working conditions on the job, they would then have more power in the workplace to hopefully keep those jobs in the United States and have protections even beyond that as well. And um, on DACA, I guess, where do we stand on DREAMers? What's the current state status of DACA in this country? Because these are, you know, people who were not here by anything other than they were a student. We've educated them. We've invested in them. (laughs) What are we doing about that? Yeah. Yeah, so DACA is especially, um, uh, has a special place in my heart. You know, we at the National Immigration Law Center have had the great honor of representing courageous plaintiffs who, I mean, we sued Trump within three hours of him terminating the DACA program back in 2017. And our case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. We now represent 1.1 million young immigrants who either are eligible for DACA that weren't, you know, have not been able to apply or who are eligible for renewals. President Biden from day one made it very clear that he was going to fortify the program and and, and protect immigrant youth. And as I mentioned earlier, the Dream and Promise Act has passed on the House side, but we don't yet have a vote in the Senate. And DACA was a temporary solution, right? Like we worked with immigrant youth to advocate and have President Obama announce DACA back in June of 2012. And that was great. And it was an incredible victory fought for and won by the very people directly impacted by that. And yet it's not enough. That was a temporary solution. What we need is a permanent solution. And the only solution to that is putting immigrant youth on a path to citizenship. And so That is basically getting everybody who's listening, hopefully call your senators to make sure that the Dream and Promise Act becomes a law and that President Biden signs that into law as soon as possible. And the way to do that is through the reconciliation or through addressing the filibuster. This has been such an important conversation. And if there's ever been any doubt of how critical immigrants are to the backbone of this country, all we have to do is look at our essential workforce over the past year during the pandemic. And in closing, I was hoping you could speak more to the role immigrants have played in helping us survive this past year and also share more about your Immigrants Are Essential campaign. Sure. Yes, Alejandra, I think that there's so many, I'm an optimist at heart. And so I'm constantly looking for like, what is the silver lining of this horrendous last year that we have been through? And, um, you know, I'm fully vaccinated now. I just got my vaccine a few days ago, my second vaccine, both times, it was given to me by an immigrant. Um, And, um, you know, I'm reminded every single day that in this country, um, one of the, 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 I think one of the silver linings is that Americans are becoming more and more aware of how interdependent we are, right? That that is one of the things the pandemic has shown us is 
our collective health and well-being requires all of us to be healthy um, and that we are so reliant on immigrants for every part of our life, right? And, um, you know, 70% of the essential workers are immigrants and among them, 80, 85% are undocumented immigrants. And so there's no recovery without immigrants. And we need to ensure that immigrants are included in the economic recovery bill. So fortunately, the American Rescue Plan, we were really successful at getting mixed status immigrant taxpayers to be included. Um, these are immigrant, undocumented immigrants that were paying taxes and were married to a U.S. citizen or had U.S. citizen children. We were able to get another 5 million um, immigrant taxpayers included. And yet there are so many more that have been excluded. Although the fact is that they are all working. They haven't even had a choice to work remotely like many of us do. Um, and so that is where we need um, we need policy change, right? We need to make sure that the Citizenship for Essential Workers bill becomes law. That's been introduced in the Senate and the House. Um, again, urge all voters to you know read up on that. Come to our website, learn more about it. Ask your senators and members of Congress to vote those bills and have that become law. But part of what we believe is also necessary in this moment is a narrative and culture change. And it's the reason that at the National Immigration Law Center, early in the beginning of the pandemic, um, we saw this happening. We saw that people were starting to applaud essential workers, healthcare workers, et cetera, um, recognizing the role of farm workers, um, health workers, educators, and yet, it is not enough for us to applaud people, right? People need to be recognized by the law for the role that they're playing in our country. And frankly, that they haven't been playing it only during the pandemic, right? That immigrants have been playing these roles and working in these really essential jobs for decades before they're doing so right now, they will always continue to do so. And so it's time for us to really have the cultural shift to recognize them. And we launched the Immigrants Are Essential uh, initiative with our partners at Resilience Force um, to start humanizing and sharing the stories of who those immigrants are. One of our um, partners, Paola, um, Oh goodness, what is Paula Mendoza, uh, who is a beautiful artist, just had a an exhibition in New York um, with the images of some of the uh, workers, essential workers who died of COVID. Um, so these are the very people that we are dependent on who also were being impacted by the pandemic and have died and that their families are now in mourning and needing to have some healing um, as a result of the, the virus. And so there's so many different ways that the that immigrants have are being impacted, both positive and um, negatively by the pandemic. And most importantly, we're really hoping that one of the good things that comes out of this pandemic is the final recognition, both by Americans and by the law, that immigrants should be able to remain in our country, um, given who, who, you know, the role that they've been playing. Marilena Incapie is the Executive Director of the National Immigration Law Center. Thank you so much for being with us today for all of your incredible work and for sharing your story that was absolutely inspirational. Gracias. That was a great interview. I have to say, you know, Immigration is really crucial to America's success. It always has been. And so I think it was awesome to get all the facts from an expert. There are always so many misrepresentations when it comes to immigration. And I'm really glad that we're able to give her a platform today to set the record straight so that we really understand this issue and understand what it is the Biden administration is trying to do. 
That's right. And the passion and the empathy that she shows for this community really comes through in her words. So I'm grateful that she was able to join us and for her service in this cause. So let's go to our POTUS. And that person is another woman in service, and she is NASA astronaut and space station commander Shannon Walker, who is handing over command of the International Space Station today and returning to Earth. A job truly well done. Our shout out goes to Gabby Wilson, also known as Her. She just won the Academy Award at 23 years old for Best Song. She was honored for her song Fight For You from the film Judas and the Black Messiah. If you haven't seen it, it's a powerful film. Go watch it. A big congratulations to her. We'll have another great episode for you next week, so be sure to tune in. As always, Pod is a Woman is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. <laughs>